Holy Spirit, we invite you to minister among us through the preaching of your word, through the, through the singing of your saints, through our interactions with one another. God, take us deeper. I ask that you would apply your word to each one of us as we individually need to hear it. Uh, we know that these are universal truths, uh, but each one of us needs to hear it in perhaps a slightly nuanced way that is fit just for us where we're at. And uh, that's impossible for me to do, but it's not impossible for you to do. So please, use me. Forgive me for my sin and frailty. And forgive us for our sin and our frailty. And build us up. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Today's preaching text is Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. One of the challenges I'm finding in this stretch especially, but I mean it's true of the whole book, but especially chapter 6 and 7, I am finding that it is actually not a good idea not to preach chapter 6 and 7 as one five-hour sermon that really that's the way it was written. The problem is the genre of preaching in our form of Christianity does not permit for that. So I won't do that. But I believe I ought to do that. Well, the implication then for, for you receiving the preaching of the Word is you have to stick with me for four or five weeks through these two chapters. Which means I cannot resolve all of the difficulties that Paul introduces at the beginning of chapter 6 until he resolves them at the end of chapter 7. And so what, what I'm asking of you then, since it's probably not going to happen that I'll preach a five-hour sermon, probably, uh, you just need to receive the word as it comes. And that's going to require a little bit of trust on your part. When I say things like, your sin nature has been killed. It has been annihilated. It is abolished. It no longer exists. You have to trust me that that's true. Even though you say, no, 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 wait a minute. I still want to sin. The sin nature is really alive in me. Well, that's chapter 7. But Paul is introducing this concept in a particular order, and he starts with the abolition of your sin nature. And, and here's why I say this. We've fallen into some bad theology in the church where we think that we're still sinners by nature. The beginning of chapter 6 just will not allow for that. 
So what we're doing is we're saying that our experience and our system of theology that we have built through the preaching of the Word in years past, through experience especially, does not allow for the idea that your sin nature has been killed. But it, it's going to become very important that we affirm that. And the contrast will not be the struggle within a divided heart, which I think is the popular theology. Yes, I know I have a new nature, but the old man is alive and well. He's in my heart, or she's in my heart. That's the popular theology. That's a defeated or a defeatist theology. If you have a theology that the old man or the old woman is still alive in your heart, you're defeated at the outset. What you believe about what you are and who you are matters for how you live. Doctrine will translate into behavior. So if you believe that the old man is not dead, he will not seem to be dead, or he will not be dead, and you will not be saved. There I go again. What you, what you believe about these things really, really matters. So you take our experience, our struggle with sin, which is a real Christian struggle, which we're going to get to. And I'll get to it today if you want, but it's five hours. So the struggle is real, but if we're going to understand what the struggle is, you have to trust me as we go through these chapters. Second problem, which compounds this problem, is for most of us, the extent of our gospel is justification. And I'm going to explain that in a minute after I read the text. Justification is glorious and wonderful and foundational to the gospel, but it is not the whole gospel. Justification, I'll define it more in a minute, but it, it is to be declared righteous by God. For most Reformed evangelicals, for most Protestants that have any kind of vibrant faith at all, justification is the gospel. But chapters 6 and 7 are in the book of Romans because justification, this being declared righteous by God, cannot answer the question that Paul asks at the outset of chapter 6. If, you know, if grace will abound to cover our sins, should we not just sin more? You cannot answer that question with the doctrine of justification. So I am battling from the pulpit these two problems. On the one hand, trying to expand our, our knowledge of what the gospel is, and then secondly, just not able to resolve everything because I only have 75 minutes. Right? 75? So all that to say, stick with me. Trust Trust me until you have reason not to trust me. When we get to the end of chapter 7, look back and see if the things I said in these be earlier weeks then make more sense. Your sin nature is dead. Crucified with Christ. Buried with Him. It's not a metaphor. It's real. Uh, stand up. For the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. This is the Word of God. What then? 
Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's the word of God. Let's go to God in prayer again and ask him to help us to understand what he has written. Oh God, help us. Help us to understand this glorious doctrine of sanctification and bring it about. Bring it about in our lives that we might be filled with the joy of Jesus Christ. We might glorify your name and be a light to the nations. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ in whom we've been crucified. Amen. The book of Romans... I've done so many preambles, we might just skip this. Uh, let's do it quickly. Because I want this to be burned into your minds. There's a pastoral reason. Repetition is a great aid in teaching. And you're going to be a master of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 to 3. What is in chapters 1 to 3? Two words. Wrath and propitiation. Great. Uh, chapters 4 and 5. What's the word? Justification. Uh, chapters 6 and 7. Is it up there? Are you just reading? <laughs> Sanctification, right on. Chapter 8. Glorification. Chapters 9 through 11. Election. Chapters 12 through 16. Right living. So you can divide the book into two parts, right? The first 11 chapters. Orthodoxy. These are the things we need to believe. There's a lot to believe. It's a lot of work to believe what God has revealed to us. And if we believe it, then 12 to 16 will just happen. I strongly believe that. That's the difference between legalism and conviction. These things happen when you believe. And the frightening thing about the church in Canada, in North America, in the West, is I don't know that we believe the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 11, because we're not putting ourselves at very much risk for the sake of Christ. 
I want to now, preamble number five, and this is just a must. If we're, it, the rest is going to flow so much easier if I define these things. Justification and sanctification. What is justification? The, and we say it, I'm going to say it a lot when I'm going through the text, so what is it? It's to be legally, to be judicially declared righteous by God. So God is the judge. He weighs your life, and his verdict is not just not guilty. You're not neutral. You're righteous. That's justification. To be declared righteous by the judge of the universe, God. It means that you have a right standing before God. Now, there's a justification by works, and there's a justification by grace through faith. And all justification is rooted in a justification of works. That is, someone has to earn righteousness for the rest of us, and that's Christ. Jesus is justified. He's declared to be righteous because when God looks at his life, he says, that's a perfect life according to his works. And the rest of us are justified by grace through faith. What does that mean? It means the justification of works by Jesus is given to us. So his works are attributed to us when we believe that he is the one son of God who lived a perfect life, carried our sins in his body, died for the sins of the world, was buried was raised back to life, ascended into heaven, and is our high priest on the throne beside God the Father. He'll return to judge the living and the dead and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. You believe that? And God counts that to you as righteousness. His works are given to us. There's such an overabundance in the wealth of the righteousness of his works that he can share that wealth with all of us and accounts to us. Now, now, this does not change our nature. This is a legal declaration by the judge of the universe, God himself, but it doesn't change who we are. It is said to be so of us, but it is not made so of us in our nature. That's the limitation of just, uh, justification. It, justification begins, remember I walked across the stage last week, it begins when we're regenerate, when we are given this gift of faith to believe in these things, then we are declared righteous, and that continues forever unaltered. You'll never be more or less righteous than the moment that you're saved. So there's no increase or decrease, there's no fluctuation, it's constant and it doesn't change forever, you're righteous. That's justification. What's Sanctification. I said sanctification had uh, two parts. I want to take the first part and divide that into two parts. So I'm going to now say it's three parts. I'm saying the same thing as I did last week, but I think this is more clear. So sanctification starts with you being killed by crucifixion. God actually kills you when he kills Christ. You are united with Christ and his death. So, so your sin nature is crucified. It is brought to nothing. That's not my words. That's last week's text. I think verse 6. The body of sin is brought to nothing. It's the strongest possible way to say that, that it is abolished, annihilated, 
killed. You die. And at the very same moment, you are born again. It's not a word that Paul ever uses, but Jesus, John, and Peter use that language. I think it's helpful to bring it in to Paul's treatment of sanctification. You're born again. And then once the moment you're born again, so to be born again is not to be birthed. This is just a, a side note for life begins at conception. When you're born again, it's that conceived again. So just as a human person that has just been conceived needs to develop and grow up, so a newly conceived Christian needs to mature, grow up in the faith. But in your nature, you've got everything that a mature believer has in your nature. Just as we would say that one-celled human being in the womb is fully human in his or her nature. But we don't want a human being to stay a zygote forever. So it is, when you're born again, you're just a spiritual zygote. You need to grow up. But you have in your nature everything that makes you a saint. You're a saint. And, and when you are glorified, that is, there's no sin left in you, and you're fully robust in your maturity and your, in your strength, you're no more a saint in your nature than you were when you were born again. But, but your experience of that sainthood is drastically different. You understand what I mean by that? So, so that's the third part, progressive transformation. So three parts of sanctification. You die. You're born again, and then you grow up. Progressively, you're sanctified. The finishing of your sanctification is glorification. Your soul is glorified at, the, at your physical death, and your body is glorified at your bodily resurrection. What's the relationship between justification and sanctification? Well, they both start at the moment of regeneration. What I want to break down is this idea that regeneration leads to justification, which leads to sanctification in the sense of progressive sanctification, which leads to glorification. No. Regeneration is that moment when God gives you the gift of faith, which justifies you. He also kills you and gives you new birth, which sanctifies you unto glory. These are two parallel realities in your salvation. And there's more things happening. We haven't even begun to talk about adoption. But let's just stick with the text. You're justified, declared righteous, and at the same time, so nothing changes in your nature on that track of justification. It's just your legal standing in the courts of heaven. But in your sanctification, there's been a change in your nature. And it, it's because it's a change in your nature that we see that it's dynamic. Because your nature now has got to work itself out over time. So, justification is your right standing before God. It's unaltered. Sanctification is a recreated nature in the likeness of Christ. And this is progressive. Last week, we said that justification teaches us that all of our sin is paid by Jesus. We are declared to be righteous. And then we asked, if this is true, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? We said, No. But as I said, Paul cannot answer why he says no by going back to justification. That's why he introduces sanctification. The reason we should not continue in sin has nothing directly to do with our justification, but it's because when you were saved, you also became a new person. 
you have a new nature where sin is impossible. Don't believe me because you still wrestle with sin? You got to just hear this out. This week, Paul asked the same question a second time. It's a little bit nuanced. We'll see that. He answers the question in the negative again. This time, however, he contrasts life before sanctification and life after sanctification. In other words, if you have been sanctified in the definitive sense, killed and born again, if you are being progressively sanctified currently, transformed from one degree of glory to another, then this, according to this week's text, is what your life will look like. Why do I emphasize the word will? This is not what your life should look like. That's legalism. This is what your life will look like. The scary thing about this, this is why legalism is so comforting. We, th- we hate legalism, but we love it. Legalism is so comforting because we don't have to ask the hard question of, my life doesn't look like this, maybe I'm not saved. Under a legalism, legalistic structure, system of, of doctrine and theology, you can just try harder. But I can't tell you to try harder. I just have to tell you to go and die. And then your life will look this way. Acknowledging that there is a struggle, which is chapter 7. So let's take a look. Here's the question. Chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Short answer, by no means. Then the rest of the text is the long answer. You'll notice that verse 15 and verse 1 are very much the same, right? Verse 1, what does it say? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That's verse 1. Verse 2, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Very similar questions. You know what also is very interesting? The way that Paul answers these questions. Parallel. Take a look at Romans 6.3. After he says, by no means, God forbid, may it never be. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Last week what we said was Paul says, no, we should not continue in sin, not because we've been justified, but because if you've been baptized by by immersion in water, what you declared was, by that baptism, that you were baptized, immersed into the death of Christ. In other words, if you've undergone water baptism, that water baptism testifies that you've been spiritually baptized into the crucifixion of Christ. And the implications of that that we worked out last week was, you're dead. So why should we not continue in sin? It's not that we should not because we've been justified and God's so generous to to cover our sins that we wouldn't want to add sin to the load that Jesus is carrying. That's an answer that is given. I don't think it's a good answer. Although it might might be an okay answer. It's not not satisfying. That will break down at some point. But what Paul says is there's this other thing happening on the cross. You're dying 
and coming back to life. There's a transformation in your nature, and if, that, if you have that new nature, you will not sin as you did before you were crucified and born again. You cannot keep sinning, not you should not keep sinning. I want to just nail this with John. Just listen, 1 John 3, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. What should we do with that? Rip that right out of your Bible? You see, John uses the born-again language, which I'm leveraging to bring clarity to Paul, who doesn't use that language, but it's the same concept. God's seed abides in you. You've died, and now you've been made new. You have a new nature, and you cannot keep sinning. It's impossible. I know, that, that creates all kinds of questions. So don't think I don't know that. I know that. But just let's see how this unfolds. Take a look at verse 16. So that was Paul in verse 3. Do you not know? It's in, look at what he does in verse 16. Do you not know, saying the same thing, that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. These do you not know questions are interesting because I do not think we know these things. And I don't think Paul is meaning to suggest that the Romans necessarily knew these things. But what he, the force of asking the question that way is, if you know these things, it will translate into a manifest difference in your life. Knowing these things makes all the difference. So what is it that we need to know this week? That if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey. What is Paul trying to get at there? Well, to put this in different language, if you want to know if you're saved or not, don't appeal to justification, but ask yourself if your life reflects genuine sanctification. Because if it doesn't, then you're not saved. That's, that's what verse 16 means. Verse 16 is bringing clarity on verses 1 to 15. Bringing clarity especially on verse 3. You prove that you've been spiritually baptized into the death of Christ by how you live your life. It's the evidence of. It's the proof of. It's not the earning of something. It's the evidence of something that is real. Evidence of your baptism, spiritual baptism, into the death of Christ is obedience to Christ. If you are not obedient to Christ, then you have not been spiritually baptized into his death. See, this is where Paul goes for this whole text. Everyone is a slave. You're either a slave to sin, which will lead to death, right? That's what it says. You're a slave of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, 
or you're a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. So another way of saying that you're a slave of obedience or a slave to obedience is you're a slave of Christ. If you're a slave of Christ, that will lead to righteousness, not just positional righteousness, but a manifest righteousness that is coming from a new nature. So if you don't have that righteousness, you're not a slave of Christ. And if you're not a slave of Christ, you're a slave of sin. And if you're a slave of sin, the only hope for you is death. Death in this body and then second death. So which one is your master? Are you a, are you a slave to sin or to Christ? Well, the answer is not which should you obey, but which one do you obey? That will indicate to you. This is a therm- thermometer, spiritual thermometer. The one you obey is your master. I'm not giving you any imperatives here. I'm not telling you to do anything. This is just reveal this is just a mirror to reveal what is true of us. To say that we are Christian and to obey sin is an oxymoron. It's impossible. Okay, so what do we do with the fact that we all still sin? Right? That's, that's the question. That's the problem. Right now, if we're taking this seriously, we should all be wondering if we're saved. So if you're, if you're feeling that way, I hope you're not alone. I hope we all are wondering that. I hopefully won't leave you there, but just linger there for a bit. What's the harm in lingering there if you are saved? And is it a lot of good to you if you're not saved? We all continue to sin. Now Paul is going to address this, but not till chapter 7. Sorry, I mean, I would love to preach it to you today, but you'll just have to come back. Verse 17, uh, this is where he's going to now contrast life before and life after. And he's setting the stage for this struggle that is continuing in us. Paul begins this talk about sanctification, saying why we shouldn't sin more, by reminding us of the change in our nature at the moment of our definitive sanctification. Now in Romans 17, he's going to say this is life before you were definitively sanctified. This is life before you were a new creature. This is a life before you were a slave to sin. Or, sorry, a slave to Christ. And then he's going to say, then this is what your life is, looks like after. So before we were saved, we're slaves to sin. After we're slaves to Christ. Take a look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So before we were saved, we were slaves of sin. What does it mean to be a slave to sin? It means the only thing you can do is sin. Now, people who are a slave to sins can do good things, but they're not doing good things for the glory of God. Therefore, it's still sin. You can do good things with the wrong motives, and it's the motive that matters. So I'm not saying it's impossible for unsaved people to be charitable or to be good in any sense. But in the eyes of God, it's still sin because it's coming from a sin nature. 
Okay, so before, you just choose your sin, and you choose how deeply into that sin you will go. That's what it means to be a slave to sin. You cannot do righteous things from a righteous nature when you're a slave to sin. Now, after you're definitively sanctified, that is, you're crucified with Christ, and you're born again, uh, Paul is now going to put some meat on these bones. He's going to help us understand, what is that, Paul? And he says, you've been made obedient from the heart. Now this is going to become crucial in developing everything else. Let me just, I, there's so much tension in here about this sin problem. Let me just let a little air out of the balloon and, and then we'll get into obedient from the heart. What we're going to see in chapter 7 is that the struggle that true born-again Christians are wrestling through is not a struggle in the heart. The, the sin nature has been abolished in the heart. And so now it's no longer an internal struggle in the heart. It's a struggle between the heart and the flesh. What is the flesh? Well, the flesh is not the heart. <laughs> well, I, that's a different sermon. But the, the, the flesh is the part of your soul that's not at the center of your soul. That's for a couple weeks from now. But, so there is a struggle, but it's not in your heart. Why? Because before you were a slave to sin, you were sinning from your heart. That's all you could do. Your heart was an idol-making factory. I think John Owen said that. But you cannot say that anymore about Christians because the heart has been made obedient. So where do you die and where are you born again? It's in your heart. Your heart, your, your sin natured heart is dead it's gone it's abolished it's annihilated it no longer exists and in place of that dead sinful heart you have a new heart and that heart never ever even desires sin hence the struggle what does it mean to be obedient from the heart i think first of all i have to answer the question what is the heart in, the, we, in, in our current culture, we separate the head and the heart, right? I think I've even preached that way. I've definitely written articles that way. It's not biblical, actually. The brain is a member of your body. The heart is what governs your person. In the Bible, the word for heart is, is lave. Lave. And the word lave is used for the seat of your emotions, so we all understand that. It's the seat of your intellect. We don't think that way. When you think intellect, you think brain. But do you know what's actually happening? Your intellect is in your heart, and your heart moves your brain. Your brain is just the physical member that is controlled by your heart. So your mind is not in your brain, it's in your heart, biblically. It's the seat of your intellect, and it's also the seat of your will. You, you make decisions from your heart. That's really important. So emotions, intelligence, and will. That's, that's biblical definition of the heart. So before you're, you've been crucified with Christ, your emotions are entirely sinful. Not that you can't love, but it's not agape kind of love. And, and the love has always got this self-interest braided into it your 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 thoughts are always sinful and your choices are only sinful 
Now, you're crucified with Christ, and that is changed. Your, your sinful heart is dead, is gone, and in place, you have a heart that only ever loves God. You have a, you have a mind that always wants the truth. And you have a will that always wants to do righteousness. There's Old Testament uh, passages that will help us to understand this. Some heavy hitters in the Old Covenant talked about this very thing, being made obedient from the heart. Moses talked about a circumcised heart. Just listen, right down where I'm going, but I want to go through this quickly. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses says, this is a promise. This is looking forward. I would say to the new covenant. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and you may live. Circumcision, it's kind of a gross analogy, but what is it? You cut something off and you throw it away. What is it to have a circumcised heart? God actually cuts the sin nature out of your heart and throws it away so that you can actually love the Lord your God with all your heart. No sin left in your heart if your heart's been circumcised. David talks about this in Psalm 51. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. What does it mean to be made obedient from the heart? It means you have a clean heart. This is why Jesus said to his disciples, you're clean. You don't need to be cleansed again, but you have to wash your feet. You don't have to wash your heart over and over and over again. Peter, Peter didn't want to be cleansed at all. Then he heard that he had to be cleansed to be with Christ. And then he said, wash all of me in Jesus says, I don't have to wash all of you over and over and over again. We're going to walk through this life. We're going to get our feet dirty with sin. And so that whole foot washing thing is mostly about sanctification. We talk about Jesus being a servant, but he, he, he serves us most primarily. That's redundant, most primarily. <laughs> primarily by sanctifying us. But he doesn't have to clean our heart over and over again because our heart always desires righteousness just our feet, our spiritual feet. Jeremiah talks about this in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here it is. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. To be made obedient from the heart is not to have the law of God written externally on stone, but for the finger of God by the Holy Spirit to write it on your heart so that you love it. And all of a sudden, it's the Christian that can pray through Psalm 119. I love your law, O Lord. You need to have a new heart to love the law of God. Ezekiel talks about this too. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols I will cleanse you. This is very similar to David. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. When you're a slave of sin, you have a stone heart. Stone hearts are dead. The metaphor here is the dead heart is killed. Uh, Those two metaphors don't mix very well. But the dead heart is taken out and a living, spiritually beating heart is put in. That's the new covenant. That's the promise. This is what Paul means when he says that you've been crucified with Christ. You have a new nature and it is impossible for you to sin. We're getting a little more information. It's impossible in your heart. So what Jeremiah says about the heart, it no longer applies to the Christian. The heart is no longer desperately wicked and deceitful. It's your heart that you can trust. I'm not saying trust your emotions. I'm saying trust your heart, the center of your soul. The heart of a sanctified person is without a sin nature. A circumcised, clean, law-abiding, obedient heart of flesh has been totally set free from sin. And that's what Paul means here when he says obedient heart. That's what he means as he continues in verse 18. Having been set free from sin in our hearts. The obedient heart has been set free from sin and has become a slave of righteousness. The problem when we read this is we don't believe it because our experience says no. But that's what Paul means. You've been set free from sin. You have no sin nature in your heart. Of course, there's a problem. We all continue to sin. Paul's going to address this. It's a struggle between a righteous heart and a lingering sin presence in your flesh. No longer longer a battle in the heart. Paul's use of the slavery motif is not perfect, but it's a good analogy. And so Paul uses it with the caution that where it breaks down, let it break down. That's what he's going to say here in verse 19. I'm speaking to you in human terms because of your natural limitations. I'm giving you this slavery uh, motif metaphor because I think it's a good one. It's helpful, says Paul. If you push it too far, it'll break down. And this is where it breaks down. If I'm a slave of righteousness, why do I still struggle with sin? That's where it breaks down. He says, but the point is so important that I make this point to you that I'm going to use the metaphor anyway. And and he gives us enough in chapter 6 and 7 to say that really this is true of the heart and you cannot say that your whole person is a slave to righteousness perfectly because you still struggle with sin and so do I. But he does use the metaphor because it is true of you in your heart. And that's why in chapter 7 he says, it's no longer I who sin, but sin who dwells in me. He's not saying that I'm not responsible for my sin, but he's making a distinction between the core identity of who he is in his heart and the rest of him. You see, I can't help but get to chapter 7. But, so the slavery thing is not a perfect metaphor, but it's a good one. And if you apply it to your heart, then it, it works really well. 
Your heart is a slave to righteousness, meaning it cannot sin. It can only do what it mas- its master tells it to do. And Paul here sets up a contrast. Verse 19, continuing. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. In a nutshell, and this will make a lot more sense after we get to chapter 7, he says there's a battle being waged, and your members is your physical body, including your brain. Brain is physical. There's, now there's a battle for control of your physical body, including your brain. And the battle is between your righteous heart and your sinful flesh. And he says, go with your heart. Go with your heart. Live from the inside out. Because if you submit your members, uh, that is your body, as slaves to impurity, then you're being lawless. And the more you do that, the more lawless you'll become. But if you activate a righteous heart to control the things that you do, the things that you think, then that will lead to sanctification. And sanctification leads to life. Notice that Paul still feels the need to exhort these slaves of righteousness to present their members, their bodies, to righteousness. So he's showing his hand a little bit that this is not as simple as, oh, now I never want to sin. But he's planting the seeds for the obedient from the heart. Paul closes this section by pleading with the saints. See, that's why we're called saints. What is a saint? Saint is a holy one. We are holy because in our hearts we are by nature holy. So he now pleads with these holy ones to consider the fruit of lawlessness over against the fruit of righteousness. And what he's doing is he's speaking to saved people. He's saying, if you're saved, this is going to resonate within you. You're going to say amen and amen. And you're going to want to do this. You're going to want to live out of your heart. And you're not going to want to cave to the lingering presence of sin in your flesh verses 20 and 21 when you were slaves of sin you were free with regard to righteousness you couldn't be righteous but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which now you are ashamed the end of those things is death so here's a good question are you saved or aren't you well are you ashamed of your own sin Then he continues in verse 22, but now you've been set free from sin. The power of sin has been broken. You're now slaves of God and the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. If you've been definitively sanctified, if you have a new heart, a circumcised heart, a clean heart, a heart with the law written on it, a heart of flesh, an obedient heart. Live that way. And if you're not living that way, maybe you don't have that heart. Maybe you're still a slave to sin. For the wages of sin is death, says Paul in verse 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, here's the question. Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? No, by no means. That makes no sense. 
The law multiplies our sin. Grace breaks the power of sin because it's by grace that we're crucified and born again. Grace actually changes our nature and it fuels us with the power from the inside out to live for God. So grace does not, by very definition of what grace is, give us permission to sin more. It in fact does the opposite. It empowers us to stop sinning. If we're under grace, the power of sin is broken even while the presence of sin lingers. Its power is broken. But we've been made obedient from the heart. Therefore, my exhortation to you, most of this is imperatives. This is mostly just reflect on yourself. Do you or do you not have this kind of heart? And if you do, live from the inside out. Obey Christ by obeying yourself. And the fruit of this will be progressive sanctification. You'll know this is true because you're changing. Just to use an example I already used, I did not decide to stop watching the Toronto Blue Jays. And I'll watch a game here and there again in the future. It's not like I've sworn off all pro sports. But my desire changed. And I believe it was God helping me to live out of the core of who I am more fully. If you want to stop sinning, don't start by trying to stop sinning. Wrestle with this doctrine of sanctification. Fill your life with Christ and the rest will fall away. The path to victory over sin is sanctification. If you've been rattled by this, go to God and come and talk to me. I want to journey with you through this. And if you haven't been saved, we can praise God that his word has done its work. And if you have been saved, I can help you to make sanctification more abundant in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you that we are saints. We are holy, not just positionally, but in our very nature. The very thing that Moses and David and Jeremiah and Ezekiel were longing for and looking forward to and prophesying, you have brought about by the new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would help each one of us as we try and think this through. And I pray that as we understand sanctification more clearly, that we would see changes in our life. Please forgive us when we do sin, when we, when we cave to the temptations that are very real in our flesh. But help us to realize that we don't really actually want to fulfill those desires. What we really want is righteousness. And help us to seek it. By your grace and with your help. In the name of Christ. Amen.